This is The Road That Killed a City, Episode 4, A Stark Amputation. When the topography of Hartford started to change, it was clear that a new road was needed to connect the city to its suburbs. But not just any road, one unlike anyone had ever seen before. Essentially, you know, if I had to boil it down to one sentence, you know, they felt that this, um, a, a freeway, expressway connection was important to connect these growing suburban residential communities uh, to the employment centers in Hartford and to help keep those employment centers in Hartford. That's Casey Harden, who works for the Connecticut Department of Transportation. And he's commenting on the laser-like focus the city had on curing the growing problem of congestion. To quote the Connecticut State Highway Department's 1945 report on expressways in the Hartford metropolitan area, the serious condition of older cities of the East, of which Hartford is one, has been pointed out repeatedly by the highway and city planning authorities. It has been clearly demonstrated by the expressway improvements now in service that they represent the only real solution to the problem of highway congestion. You know, they felt that the congestion that that was creating was bad for local businesses, bad for those commuters, bad for those businesses in Hartford. And so providing this type of expressway connection would help address those concerns. Hartford, an old compact city, was going to get a new road. A road with eight lanes and no intersections or stoplights. It was going to cause a major intrusion on the city's layout. The challenge was figuring out where this new expressway was going to go. And the engineers in Hartford came up with a clever idea. The Park River flowed up through the heart of Hartford and deposited into the much larger Connecticut River just south of the city center. It was picturesque and serene. But there was just one problem with it. The Park River, uh, which had had a series of flood events both in the 1930s and again in 1955, relatively polluted water course and um, you know, lack of flood protection led to you know, those waters really damaging residential and, and, and industrial communities along it. In order to control the flooding, the city engineers decided to bury the river underground. With the waterway covered, a brand new expressway could easily fit right on top a convenient solution, but perhaps a bit too convenient. We often hear that the Park River was buried because of the floods, and that's kind of a false, oversimplified narrative that gets thrown around without much investigation. That's Carrie Provost. As the Industrial Revolution got underway, that's when people started to really gripe about the river. This was at a time when Hartford's population was rapidly expanding, and homes were being built right up against the river. Like, any genius can look at that and say, if you put your house, you build a tenement next to a river, you're going to get water in your basement. So the issue of flooding, though real, was preventable. And furthermore, might not have actually been the real reason city officials wanted the river buried. And while researching the demise of the Park River, Provost came to a realization. And Hartford hires this consultant, an engineer from New York, and he had published a few like city plans. He has recommendations about all kinds of things Hartford should be doing, but basically it was like a pave the planet mentality. And one of the things he recommended was to cover the Park River to make more room for cars. He wanted to just cover that up downtown to accommodate vehicles. Um, so that's 1912 we're talking. 
Still, no one is mentioning covering that up for flooding. It's all about the cars. So a plan was in place to create an expressway along the Park River into downtown Hartford running east to west, meeting up with the north-south running expressway that would be built on the soon-to-be-levied Connecticut River. But the destination these expressways were meant to serve was about to go through a major change as well. From the time of Mark Twain to the mid-20th century, Hartford had grown from a small but important city to a thriving industrial center. And at the heart of it all was always downtown. Steve Harris has lived in Hartford his whole life, and he remembers his childhood excursions into downtown well. Going downtown was like an adventure. We would dress up to go downtown. Mm-hmm. We were going down there to pay a bill. It was, it was, downtown was like this mecca. And according to him, there was an energy downtown had that set it apart from the rest of the city. You, you could tell when you, when you entered the downtown perimeter because it was just, it was bustling, it was busy, it was commerce, it was, when you went to the big purchases, the, 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 it was just, it, it was bustling. There were department stores like the monolithic G. Fox mixed with apartment buildings and company headquarters and movie theaters. As a kid, you know, we... Actually, it was movie theaters all through the through the city. Park Street had uh, a movie theater. Uh, uh, Albany Avenue had a movie theater. Harris also contributed to the downtown hustle as a kid. What I remember about downtown was it was always crowded. And it was lively. It was lively. As a kid, I used to shine shoes downtown. Get up early Saturday morning, hustle downtown, get in front of J.J. Newberry's on Main Street with my box. And me and guys from the neighborhood, shine shoes, 12, 13 years old. Harris also has fond memories of the neighborhood he grew up in, the North End, only a few blocks away from the bustling downtown. My next door neighbors were Irish, Italian, and Jewish. My best friend's name was David Cutler. He was Jewish. His parents taught me about, about Hanukkah, explained <laughs> to me about the menorah. I'm telling you, it was, a very, it was very multicultural before multicultural was a thing. Though Harris said in his early years his was the only black family in the neighborhood, this soon started to change. I want to say about 13, 14 years old, they built the Stowe Village housing project. Then more well, people of color started moving in. This only added to the strong diversity that the neighborhood had. The neighborhood was, was, was still an integrated neighborhood. Even Stowe Village housing project was, was integrated. The Hartford Harris grew up in was one he remembers fondly, but it was always bound to change. His diverse neighborhood was redlined, and downtown was marked as a gray zone. Zone not as a residential neighborhood, but as a business-only part of town. Hartford hired architect firm Rogers, Taliaferro, and Lamb, now known as RTKL Associates, to commission the city's urban renewal. In their interim plan, the firm wrote, That the physical plant of downtown Hartford has become obsolete is well recognized. Dilapidated structures give downtown a generally dejected atmosphere. The antidote to physical dilapidation is rebuilding. The antidote to obsolete land pattern is reorganization. The plan was to widen streets for less congestion and create more access to parking. A business park called Constitution Plaza would be built, separated by walls from pedestrian life. 
A new shopping mall called Sentinel Mall would pop up just outside the East-West Expressway downtown. So would a luxury apartment building called Bushnell Plaza, built by renowned architect I.M. Pei, the guy that designed that glass pyramid outside the Louvre in Paris. There would also be middle-income housing near the Connecticut River and lower-income housing just north and south of downtown. Much of the land would be acquired through eminent domain. Old neighborhoods demolished, and 60s-era concrete skyscrapers would be put in their place. And the project intended to transform downtown Hartford from a bustling old-fashioned hub that looked much like Boston's North End or Tribeca in New York to a modernist paradise that would have made Frank Lloyd Wright proud. The whole project was estimated to cost $52 million, over $550 million in today's money. Hartford was trying something ambitious, something new. In about two hours south, in America's largest city, a city player named Robert Moses was trying something similarly drastic. Robert Moses was an extraordinarily influential person in the city of New York between the 30s and the 60s. And his vision for New York ran pretty much parallel to that of Hartford. Moses was trying to make the city in America most synonymous for public transport, a haven for cars. And in doing so, leveled many historic and beloved parts of the city. Moving from east to west, or vice versa, has always been a difficult task in cramped Manhattan, and Moses wanted to make sure this tedious trip would be made easier for cars. Of course, this would also mean tearing down an entire section of the city. The fact that Greenwich Village was a poor neighborhood at the time was one of the main deciding factors for Moses. And this project famously caught the ire of one local activist. Jacobs had long been a strong critic of Moses' work.
Thanks to Jane Jacobs and other local activists, the plans for the Crosstown Expressway ended up being scrapped, and the interior of Manhattan stayed interstate free. And if Moses had gotten what he wanted, much of Greenwich Village would be gone today. But Robert Moses was also hired as a consultant in Hartford's urban renewal. And there, he would get his way. In his arterial plan for Hartford, written in 1949, Moses suggested a change in the highway's route, and that following the Park River all the way into downtown would expose a missed opportunity. In the plan, Moses wrote, We believe a new location through the slum area north of the business section would be preferable. This is a change that would demolish much of the city's low-income housing, right near where Steve Harris grew up and use the highway as a physical barrier between the working class North End and downtown. Moses was less than subtle in his reasoning. Referring to the downtown urban renewal, he wrote, We know that the substandard tenement land west of the tracks is zoned for future business and industry. It would be impossible to assemble so large an area otherwise than by condemnation. And this is the opportunity to accomplish at once slum clearance, rehousing, and business and industrial development. One of the nation's most ambitious urban renewal projects was underway. All it needed was some final funding, which came when President Dwight Eisenhower passed the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. The East-West Expressway would become a part of Interstate 84, and the path it took followed Robert Moses' plans to a T, a path created for the sole purpose of creating a barrier between the business-only downtown and the working-class multicultural neighborhood to the north. After the plans were finalized, 
The Hartford Current lauded that the interstate system would make Hartford a hub of transportation. And with that, combined with the redlining, suburbanizing, zoning, and drastic urban renewal, Hartford would spend almost a decade completely changing shape. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs>